tell me how you got interested and involved in simulation then. So I think like many people, my kind of first interest in sort of education and simulation started through being nominated as an instructor for um, an advanced life support course. And I went off and did the generic instructor course and started teaching on ALS courses as a sort of a senior SHO junior registrar. Uh, and then once I'd got all the sort of various exams out of the way, you're kind of thinking about what you want to develop as your other interest as a consultant. And the two things that I were interested in were echocardiography and medical education. Uh, continued to get involved in simulation teaching, headed up a course which a colleague had designed on simulation for foundation trainees in Bristol. Um, and within about a year, responsible for delivering uh, education to the trainees. Kind of continued to develop that interest in simulation um, through that time. And also did a postgraduate certificate in medical education with a special interest in simulation to give me a little bit more of a kind of educational grounding in simulation. And yeah, it's kind of grown from there, really. So what about the actual intensive care simulation and the in-situ simulation in your unit? How did that all start? Yeah, so when I started, um, we weren't really doing any simulation training. About a year in, I started introducing it sort of once a month initially. Uh, and I think the key factors which allowed us to really start to move it forward were buy-in from kind of the matron and the clinical lead uh, on the unit. And then our matron had a background in resuscitation, had previously been a resuscitation officer as well. So I think they were very supportive of it. And uh, we set up a, a simulation working group of kind of key parties uh, who were going to be able to help develop it. And yeah, there was certainly some reluctance initially. Um, and I think particularly, perhaps more so among the nursing staff than the medical staff to start with, I think as doctors, we're quite used to being involved in simulation through exams and through training. Um, but the nursing staff, I think, have less exposure to it in their training and feel perhaps a little bit more threatened by it and that they are under observation. Um, but, uh, yeah, we kind of persisted and actually it started to kind of become more accepted and people kind of just got used to it, really, and started to really see the benefits of doing it in situ. And it made it much more easy for people to attend uh, and we could do it in work time. Uh, and they started to see the advantages of what we were discovering in terms of team working and also uh, latent safety threats that we were discovering through running scenarios actually within the intensive care unit rather than within a simulation suite. And you mentioned buy-in there. Uh, that's a theme that's come up a lot and the importance of it and also how difficult it can be to get buy-in. Sounds like you're quite lucky having people that were keen. What benefits has getting their buy-in actually brought, do you think? And why is that important and why would you struggle if you didn't have that? I think there's a really nice phrase which I have seen called reflected authority. Um, so it, I think it implies that as the person delivering the simulation, you know, I'm not the clinical lead for the unit and neither am I you know, the matron responsible for the nursing staff. But if this staff, both the medical and the nursing staff, sense that I am being fully backed up by the lead for nursing staff and the clinical lead, then that kind of gives me the authority that actually this is what the unit has decided we're going to do and gives me the kind of backing of the unit to deliver that. So I think there's a degree of like, well, this is what the unit's decided and, you know, this is what we're all going to do. And then the other side of it is the kind of softer side of actually people realizing by doing the simulation program what they get out of it and, and how much they enjoy it. Uh, and that kind of buy that they then get their own kind of buy-in by actually participating in it. 
No, we've had one doctor who absolutely refused to do it. I would never force somebody to do simulation who absolutely didn't want to do it, but I would sit down with them and, you know, have a talk to them and find out why they were so averse to doing it and see if we could try and put something in place to allow them to go forward being able to partake in simulation, even in a limited capacity. Because the reality is, as doctors, you know, it forms part of our exams, possibly in the future, it will form part of our revalidation. So, uh, you know, I think we've got a duty to try and uh, enable people to be able to partake in simulation, both for their own professional development and also potentially for their career. What is the reasons, do you think? There's a huge responsibility to doing simulation. And, you know, I think that's one of the important things is it's not something just to sort of pick up and dally with. You can undoubtedly cause huge uh, psychological harm to people through simulation. Uh, And actually, we had a really interesting simulation where we uh, made it truly multi-professional. So we had nursing, medical staff, and also we brought in a physiotherapist for the first time. And... At uh, the, the end of the scenario, the, I had a really senior registrar and another doctor, and they said that was the best simulation we've ever done. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. Uh, it was just so realistic. And, you know, the human factor side, and I just went home thinking, ah, oh, you know, I completely nailed it. This is so good. Uh, and then the next day, our lead physiotherapist came to me. And she's like, uh, can I just have a little word? Um, the physiotherapist you attended was really quite upset afterwards. And I was like, what do you mean they were upset? Like, it was an amazing scenario. It all went really well. Everyone loved it. Uh, And we'd completely inadvertently put her in a position where she felt she was not doing something she would normally be doing. And as a result, felt that she wasn't performing at the level that she would normally be performing at and felt that people would view her as not being competent or uh, eroding her kind of professional identity. And I'd completely, utterly not picked up on that. Um, so, you know, for one group in the scenario, it was an amazing scenario. They loved it. And then for somebody else, it was an absolute disaster. And, you know, psychologically really not helpful for them and that was a real lesson to me just to be really careful that you make sure that you are tailoring it to everyone in everyone in in the scenario is feeling comfortable and actually as a result of that um, I've taken away from that and I think actually now in my briefings uh, I'm going to say to people at the beginning look you know if during the scenario you start to feel uncomfortable or you feel that you're being asked to do something that you wouldn't normally do then please just you know put your hand up and we'll take a break in the scenario um, and just you know have a sort of time out so in terms of picking up when people maybe are struggling, do you think that there's a perfect or at least a sort of minimum ratio of faculty to delegates when you're running a simulation? Yeah, I guess there's the what, what you aspire to and the reality of what you can deliver on a Tuesday afternoon in the middle of December when the unit's over capacity and two people are off sick. Uh, and that's the problem with in situ because you're, you know, you're kind of doing it a little bit on the hoof. You're not doing it in a simulation center with a whole kind of range of faculty at your disposal. So we normally run faculty wise. We'd normally have one consultant, one nurse practice educator, plus minus our simulation fellow, depending on kind of what their rotor is or whether they're, you know, on annual leave or on nights. But yeah, hopefully three people. That really is the kind of bare minimum to run it. But realistically i'm not sure we've got the luxury of being able to have more faculty how how many delegates do you have then in the scenario usually so typically we'd normally have probably two possibly three nursing staff and then medical wise we'd probably have three or four doctors and then maybe a couple of observers as well and then it's interesting what you do about the observers because you can either have them sort of on the fringes of the scenario watching it you know in person 
or we have kind of considered also whether trying to set up a video link to our handover room, but I feel quite uncomfortable about videoing people. I think most people, when you start to talk about doing video, their anxiety level just goes up another notch. And also doing in situ simulation in the intensive care unit and starting to set up videos, there's all sorts of issues about uh, confidentiality of, you know, potentially capturing other patients or capturing relatives visiting. So for that reason, we've not gone down the video link route, but yeah, you know, a few people in the feedback have said there were too many people watching to, and it, that made them feel uncomfortable as well. So like all things, there's advantages and disadvantages and you sort of just have to kind of try and come up with a compromise that is the best option for all. Absolutely. What do you say to people before they start the simulation? Maybe people, like you said, nurses aren't as used to simulation as doctors. What do you say to them to kind of put them at ease and make them feel a bit safer? I imagine a lot of them will feel like they're being tested, as you said. I don't think you can ever completely break down people's inhibitions or fears about it. Uh, but yeah, you, you know, we clearly state that this is not an assessment. You know, we're not going to be not everything that stays within the simulation is, you know, safe. And, you know, this is the opportunity to learn. And, you know, we're not going to be criticizing. It's purely about learning and yeah, trying to reassure them as much as possible. But, you know, they, you can still see they feel anxious and there's a degree of peer performance. Nobody wants to look bad in front of their peers. Uh, and I think the psychological safety, you know, if you feel that it's too much or you're, you know, just put your hand up or, you know, speak to us and we'll stop the scenario, take a time out. You know, I think that's something I'm definitely going to introduce. Now, you mentioned uh, you've got a simulation fellow. Talk a bit about how that works, what, what their responsibilities are, how much time they are allocated to do simulation, how it's funded, etc. To make our rotor kind of compliant for weekends and night working, we need 15 people on our rotor. There's two slots and maybe one an ultrasound fellow and one a simulation fellow, and they have 40% uh, of their time dedicated to doing their fellowship. Uh, right. The Sim Fellow Post has been running about two and a half, three years now. Uh, and it's been fantastic. Um, and each person brings their own kind of stamp on it and sort of takes it slightly in their own direction and brings, you know, new ideas to it as well. Uh, and as a result of that, they've all presented work at ASPE National Simulation Conferences. You know, they get something out of it as well. And a couple of them have done a postgraduate certificate in medical education alongside doing the simulation fellowship. Yeah, they've been brilliant. They sort of help get the scenarios ready. They liaise with the nursing staff, you know, finding out which bed space they're going to use, bringing the mannequin over, getting it all set up. They've written scenarios in response to kind of cases that they've been involved in. And then we help them in sort of, yeah, how to design the scenarios, how to identify what the educational objectives are going to be. And then starting to guide them through that process of learning how to do a debrief. And, you know, undoubtedly, you know, as most people would say, the learning from the simulation and the quality of the simulation at the end of it is all down to how well you manage to do the debrief. If someone listening to this wanted to be able to run a monthly in-situ simulation, do you think they would need simulation fellow with some dedicated time you know once a month you could definitely do uh without a simulation fellow we are currently doing it twice a month and i'm looking to try and get it up to once a week if you look at the how many nurses we've got we've got probably about 100 nurses so if you're doing it twice a month your nurses are going to do it maybe once every one or two years so yeah we'd like to try and get everybody through a little bit more frequently 
the next step for us is trying to actually move on from sort of you know measuring how much people enjoy the scenarios to really looking into whether we can demonstrate some higher level outcomes from the implementation of the simulation program. So sort of Kirkpatrick evidence level three or four, uh, which is like changing behaviors of members of staff who've been through the simulation program or even changes in patient outcomes. Uh, and that's the area I'm trying to focus on at the moment, but that is is tricky and that's a new area for me and trying to learn about educational research is something that I'm trying to kind of get involved in now and so that's the next my next vision for the simulation program is to really try and demonstrate that we are having real impact on the staff who attend it and potentially influencing patient outcomes kind of is like patient ethnography so the ethnography of the unit and looking at how attitudes and behaviors of staff uh, change over time and whether you can demonstrate that participation in a multi-professional simulation program which kind of focuses on interprofessional collaboration and team human factors training can produce changes in staff behaviors which then lead to changes in patient outcomes but yes you need ethnographers kind of observing your practice and your unit Um, but yeah this is an area I'm, I'm trying to learn at the moment and that's my kind of vision for the next one to two years do you have specific time allocated to simulation then i have one spa allocated to me as the tutor's job and i was finding that a lot of my time was being taken up through managing the junior doctor's rotor and managing gaps the rotor and running recruitment to fill in the clinical fellow posts and I was finding that was really starting to detract from the amount of time I had available to me to kind of develop the more educational side of things as the tutor. So I've now moved off that bit of my job to a couple of colleagues. Um, and now I feel again that I can actually really now dedicate my time to the education side and ensuring both the trainees' welfare and also that they get the educational training that they uh, should be getting. Your job plan does need to acknowledge that this does require some time.